Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good evening. Good evening. I'm Paul Stafford. I'm the uh, Dallas Bar President for 2012. I'm also a member of the World Affairs Council's Board of Directors, and uh, we're pleased to have a very distinguished speaker and guest here with us this evening. William Shawcross is here today to speak about his most recent book, Justice and the Enemy, Nuremberg, 9-11, and the Trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. I want to thank the Center for American and International Law for planning and partnering with the World Affairs Council on this fascinating and intriguing program. And also I'd like to thank SMU's Embry Human Rights Program for their promotional support. Let's give both of them a round of applause if we may. Now I, I get to make a little plug. The Council has put together a very impressive lineup of other speakers and, and topics this spring, and I would encourage you not only to pick up the brochure that's out in the lobby, but to go to the website. Um, and check out the full details. The upcoming highlights, some, are Ambassador Frank Weisner, who will kick off the Chairman's Global Business Series this Thursday, the 19th of January. Uh, Luis Alberto Urea and Ayer Akhtar will be Friday the 20th at DMA's Horschild Auditorium, and then two ambassadors, Gary Dore and Yusuf Al-Otieba, uh, ambassador to the UAE to the U.S. will be January 31st and February 1st, respectively. For more information, as I mentioned, please go to dfwworld.org, uh, www, that is, dfwworld.org, and check it out. As always, Jim, uh, uh, as Jim would always say, we need to make sure our phones are uh, turned off. Um, and if you... Um, this is not in my script, but if you know of people who could benefit from great programs like this in Dallas, please spread the word about this great organization. We have a, we have a jewel here, and I would encourage you to um, encourage others to hear some of the great topics like the one you're going to hear tonight. So without further ado, I would introduce Mark Smith, who's Vice President of the Center for American International Law. He's going to introduce tonight's speaker. Thanks. Thank you, Paul. And I know I need to be brief because uh, someone who you know, introduced the speaker, who introduced the speaker, it, it gets to be too much too quick. But on behalf of the Center for American and International Law, I just want you to know how pleased we are to be part of this program. Um, I had the good fortune of serving on the board of the World Affairs Council, and, and the council has worked closely with the center. Our center is a not-for-profit organization that provides continuing education to lawyers and law enforcement officials from around the world. And we like to say we've been in more countries than McDonald's. We've hosted people from uh, 130 different countries, and, and, and we're glad to be part of this program. Um, I have a, 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 you know, a, a, a prop with me, something that I hope each of you will have by the end of the evening. But if I were, uh, if I were the Irish Times, I would say that William Shawcross stands as the foremost 
journalist of his generation. If I were the Glasgow Herald, I would say that Mr. Shawcross holds a mirror up to ourselves as we respond ineffectively to the world's horrors. A prolific author and broadcaster based in Britain, but certainly no stranger to these United States and to the, uh, and to the rest of the world, uh, Mr. Shawcross has had articles published in Time Magazine, Newsweek, International Herald Tribune, The Spectator, Rolling Stone, The Wall Street. <laughs> I'm sorry. Long ago. Long, long, ah, that's all right. It, the Wall Street Journal, and the list goes on and on. His books have included uh, um, such notable publications as Queen and Country, The Queen Mother, The Official Biography, Deliver Us from Evil, um, Warlords, Peacekeepers in a World of of endless conflict, and for which he was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, Sideshow, Kissinger, Nixon, uh, and the destruction of Cambodia. I, th I think sometimes you know a person more by what he does behind the scenes than in front of the camera, and you might be interested to know that Mr. Shawcross is uh, the chairman of Response, which is a charity that uh, helps refugees who have suffered because of their political beliefs, and he also served for a decade as chairman of Article 19, which is a London-based charity which defends the rights of, of free expression as enshrined in the Declaration on Human Rights. I want to tell one story that connects my organization, I'm, I'm proud to say this, this, I like to brag about this, with Mr. Shawcross. His dad um, was the chief British prosecutor at Nuremberg, and the founder, as some of you may know, of our organization was uh, Dallas's own Robert Story, who served as uh, the U.S.'s executive trial counsel at Nuremberg. So I am sure, Mr. Shawcross, that... Uh, that Dean Story and your dad were, were, were close confidants. Um, as I mentioned, I do have a prop. Mr. Shawcross's uh, most recent book, Justice and the Enemy, about which he will speak this evening, uh, is subtitled Nuremberg 9-11 and the Trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. In it, uh, Mr. Shawcross describes lessons from the past and how they can help us as we confront enemies of today. Um, he talks about serving justice through Nuremberg and through other activities that we can engage in as a people of law. And on behalf of a, of a legal organization, it's my great pleasure to welcome to the podium William Shawcross. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for those kind words, and thank you all for coming here to listen to what I hope won't be too many words from me, because there's nothing long worse than speakers who go on too long. It's a, it's a great pleasure for me to be at the World Affairs Council. I know you're one of the uh, oldest and best and biggest in the United States, as the Texas World Affairs Council should be. Um, <laughs> 
I, I've not been to Texas nearly enough. I've been, I come to America as much as I can, all my, ever, ever since I worked in Vietnam as a journalist in 1972. I've been fascinated and absorbed in American politics and American foreign policy. And I come as often as possible. But I haven't come very often to Texas, though a year ago I was invited uh, to go to Lubbock to... <laughs> I don't know why you laugh. I, I, went, I was invited to Lubbock by the ladies' club of Lubbock to talk to them about the Queen Mother, about whom, I'd, as, as Mark said, I'd written a, um, the official biography. And I actually, and I landed in Lubbock, came, coming via Dallas, and I was rather astonished by it. But I had a really lovely time. And the ladies' club in Lubbock were absolutely charming and delightful people, and I'd like to go back. And um, I keep telling them that this is, this is really interesting, but I don't think it's quite as, as enjoyable to them or as uh, the Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. And I have to say it's not as enjoyable to me either. Writing about these people, writing about Al-Qaeda and the horrors that they perpetrate around the world, not just on 9-11, but obviously especially in, on 9-11, is really depressing. Waking up every morning to try and think about them in the context of international law or um, uh, politics or just strategic uh, defense. And uh, one thinks of them mostly in terms of 9-11, but every day around the world, People are being killed, mostly Muslims, it has to be said, by Al-Qaeda or other Islamist terror groups setting off car bombs, suicide bombers, and so on. I mean, yesterday there were 25 people killed in Basra in southern, uh, in southern Iraq, and just goes, it goes on in every day. It's really horrific, and it's a real new scourge of the world, and I think that the United States' role in trying to defeat them is crucial. And um, one of the things I, I, I believe very strongly is that uh, in, throughout the last century, the 20th century, the United States was the only f center that held. And without American protection, we in Europe would be completely finished. Um, it, the, the book that you mentioned that I'd written about Henry Kissinger, which was very critical of Kissinger in Cambodia, in, published in 1979, and Henry, Kissinger's aide uh, wrote a very strong attack on me, which was, um, uh, which was an insult, which I published in the subsequent paperbacks, in which he said, if, Mr. Sh if we listened to Mr. Shawcross, he would have, been, he would have grown up speaking German. Um, <laughs> because at that stage, I, Dr. Kissinger thought that my criticisms of him were criticisms of the United States, which they were not meant to be. I think the United States, as I say, is the, is the one center that, that uh, is absolutely crucial. And if I may start, before I get back into the 9-11 um, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, there's a, um, a French philosopher called Pascal Bruckner who writes about the European relationship with the United States in this way. Europeans are incredibly uh, snooty very often and, uh, uh, about the United States in ways which I think are completely absurd. But this philosopher is a very good man called Pascal Bruckner, as I said. He writes, the perpetual peace to which Europe aspires has its source not in Europe but in the United States. If America were to collapse tomorrow, Europe would fall like a house of cards. It would return to the chaos it showed in Munich versus Hitler in 1938 and be reduced to a deluxe sanatorium ready to allow itself to be torn apart piece by piece by all sorts of predators. And I think that's true. And one of the things that worries me now is the withdrawal of American influence and power in the world. And uh, President Obama's um, famous refusal to say that he believed in American exceptionalism is much more alarming for us in Europe, I think, than it is for even for the United States. 
anyhow, that's rather a long and lengthy introduction. I apologize. I wrote this book because, as you said, I, um, my fa- because of my father. My father was the, defu- was the British chief prosecutor at Nuremberg and a close, the deputy, uh, therefore, of Robert Jackson, Justice Jackson, the American prosecutor. And through my childhood, I remember listening to 78 RPM recordings of my father's speeches for the prosecution at Nuremberg, and they were horrifying things to hear of the eyewitness accounts that he repeated of horrors of mass graves of Jews being forced to undress and be shot by SS officers in the Ukraine and other places. And I was um, appalled and as a young boy listening to these things, and the memory has remained with me. And... In November 2009, Obama's um, Attorney General, Eric Holder, announced that they were going to put Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and other 9-11 suspects in Guantanamo on trial in Manhattan. And as you will recall, there was an immediate row about this. And so my American publisher um, uh, from Public Affairs rang me up and said, William, your father was the chief British prosecutor at Nuremberg, so why don't you write a short, sharp book saying Nuremberg was how we dealt with the monsters then, here's how we should deal with them today, and or how should we deal with them today. And I loved my father and admired him and thought this would be an interesting and easy thing to do. So I said yes, and he said, yes, I'd like to publish it at the end of 2010. Uh, So I said yes. Um, And it was actually far more difficult than I had anticipated largely because I'm not a lawyer and I find these things incredibly complicated, all the interstices of international law. And um, secondly, because the value judgments I found very difficult to do. Anyway, I started, and it's, it, it's taken, uh, it took me 10 months or a year longer than I expected. But here it is, and it's looking at the way in which the United States has responded, basically, to 9-11 and to that appalling crime in the context of Nuremberg. If I can just recap on Nuremberg, um, probably you all know this because you're um, a very distinguished audience here, Um, but at the end of the war in 1945, there was a debate amongst the Allies as to how to deal with those German leaders who were captured. Stalin wanted to shoot 100,000 German officers. Churchill rather surprisingly, I think, wanted to shoot about 10 of the leaders, whoever were picked up, Hitler and whoever uh, was, was found with him. Churchill argued that a trial of any sort would be seen as a show trial, would be seen as victor's justice, could drag on interminably, and would not be worth it. Roosevelt had a very different opinion um, by the spring of 1945 anyway, and said that we should have a trial. Roosevelt then died, as you know, in April 1945, tragically, only a few days before the end of the war. And Truman took over, and Truman agreed there should be a trial, and Truman appointed Robert Jackson, the, uh, an, associate chief, an associate justice of the Supreme Court, to, um, to be um, the chief American prosecutor. But there was um, controversy even then, and Jackson's superior, Chief Justice Harlan Fisk Stone, disapproved of what he called Jackson's lynching party. (laughs) And his uh, objections were to the use or misuse of law. He said, I don't mind what he does to the Nazis, but I hate to see the pretense that he's running a court and proceeding as to common law. That's a little too sanctimonious a fraud to meet my old-fashioned ideas. Anyway, Jackson, I think, performed a heroic task. He arrived in Europe in May 1945, just a week after the end of the war, 
after VE Day, travel around the wreckage of the continent, found that the courthouse in Nuremberg was one of the buildings that had uh, official buildings that had not been totally destroyed by Allied bombing, said, let's have the court here. The US Army immediately started to rebuild and rehabilitate the courthouse, building canteens and uh, everything that was needed for a proper uh, hearing in those days. And um, Jackson went to Paris, where the US Army had gathered hundreds of thousands of documents which uh, the Nazis had kept, showing the extent of their crimes against humanity and their massacre of the Jews and so on. And Jackson said, I can't believe that anyone would have been so stupid to write all this down. But they did. Um, and that, that, that massive, massive information became the basis of the prosecution and the basis of many of the histories that have been written about Nazi Germany ever since and the progress of the Second World War. It's been a fantastic uh, resource for historians for the last 60 years. And uh, the trial got underway in, um, in uh, November 1945 with four prosecutors, as you know, American, British, French, and unfortunately Russian, because the Russians wanted the trial merely to be for vengeance. And the Russians thought that anyone uh, in the dock was automatically guilty and there was no point in any process whatsoever. Anyhow, a, a, and the Russians had no con concept of the rule of law such as the three Western powers had. Nonetheless, Jackson and my father also negotiated with the Russian prosecutors and made a system that worked. And it worked extraordinarily well, in my view, and, and remarkably swiftly compared with what happens nowadays in any court processes. And the trial was over. There were 22 America, uh, G Germans and Nazis in the dock. They all had lawyers chosen by the United States or the British. They were Nazi lawyers, mostly found in Nuremberg, and each were appointed to each of the defendants. Um, and um, the 22 people in the dock and the the trial ended in July 1946, and I think uh, 13 of them were sentenced to death. Six were um, um, given long jail sentences, and two were uh, set free, were found innocent. Well, the Russians demurred so that everybody should be sentenced to death at once, but that was the sentence, and those, were, those sentences were carried out, and the executions took place in November 1946. So it really was an extraordinary swift uh, application of justice. And there were shortcomings to it, there was no question, but um, the, the, uh, it, it worked, I think, better than anything else would have worked at that time. And to that tribute must go, obviously, to Roosevelt and Truman and, uh, and to Bob Jackson himself, who was a, a most distinguished lawyer. And I've used Jackson very much in the th to throughout this book looking at some of the, lots of things that he said about the nature of presidential power and the role of the president, particularly in wartime. And he took a very um, ex expansive view, if you like, of the, uh, the nature of presidential power and the, the way in which the president should not be hamstrung in time of war, either by the Congress or by the judiciary. And, um, uh, and, and that, I mean, he, some of his ideas seem old-fashioned today, but I think that they were certainly... Um, not, not so seen at the time. The, 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 and, and Nuremberg, as, as, as I stress, was a military tribunal, as are the tribunals which are planned for Guantanamo now. Um, and I think uh, to, uh, to make that leap to Guantanamo, um, 
I would like just to point out that if any of the Nazis in the dock at Nuremberg had been able to be carried by time machine from Nuremberg to Guantanamo today, they would be astonished by the privileges and the safeguards that are applied to all the defendants in Guantanamo, none of which were applied in Nuremberg. Nuremberg was, I think, a proper trial, not just victor's justice. Justice was there seen to be done, but there were far fewer privileges accorded to the prisoners than there are today. And most basic of all, anyone in Guantanamo who is convicted and found guilty of any crime, capital or otherwise, has the right to appeal through the federal system to the Supreme Court of the United States. And there's no better guarantee, it seems to me, than that, uh, that these trials will be conducted fairly and properly. Now, this book explores that, the, the, the nature of the, of, the, of the trials and the nature of the law that has developed since 1945. In particular, one, one particular problem or no, um, uh, controversy has been about the Geneva Conventions, which were, after 1945, expanded in 1948-49 to give greater protection to civilians who had suffered so terribly during the Second World War. And um, also um, the conventions were expanded to determine who was justified to be treated as a prisoner of war and which fighters were not entitled to be prisoners of war. And as you know, after 9-11, George Bush de determined that Al-Qaeda and other Islamist fighters like them were not genuine soldiers and they were not therefore entitled to the rights of prisoners of war under the Geneva Conventions. And that has been a source of controversy, particularly in Europe, where Europeans have claimed, not faced with the same problems as the United States in this issue, that they should have been treated with the full rights of prisoners of war. Um, Stephen Hadley, the former National Security Advisor, pointed out subsequently, we defended the Geneva Conventions, and Al-Qaeda violated them in every respect. They would hide among civilians to protect themselves, and they would kill innocent civilians to achieve their objectives. There could not be anything more inconsistent with international standards for how you conduct a conflict. And in the, in the light of that, we were supposed to treat them like normal POWs. Why is that a humane, forward-thinking policy? And why indeed? I mean, to encourage the way in which Al-Qaeda fought, to, uh, in which civilians were not only their shield, but also their, deliberately their targets, uh, is, seems to me completely absurd. And I think the United States' position on that was quite right. Um, another controversy which I've tried to deal with in this book is that about torture, alleged torture. Um, as you know, uh, George Bush authorized, after 9-11, um, what was called enhanced interrogation of al-Qaeda suspects. This was applied, these techniques of enhanced interrogation, of which the most serious was waterboarding, were applied to a, a, about 30 people, um, and three of them were waterboarded including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. This was extremely controversial. As you know, the Justice Department determined that uh, waterboarding and the other methods was not torture. Um, others disagree. The British would say that waterboarding was torture, though we should acknowledge that in Northern Ireland at the beginning of the troubles there in the 1970s, we applied many of the other methods, um, wall standing and um, extreme noise to, um, um, and so on, uh, to IRA prisoners. And uh, we didn't 
consider that we were then torturing them. But that nonetheless, um, the, 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 the sort of consensus in Europe, at least, is that these, issue, the, these measures were torture. And I've looked at this to a, a certain, quite a lot in the book, because it's such a complicated and painful issue. Um, Michael Ignatieff, a Canadian politician and liberal academic, pointed out that torture is probably the hardest case in the ethics of the, of the lesser evil. A clear prohibition against torture erected in the name of human dignity comes up against a utilitarian case grounded in a dignity claim, namely the protection of human lives. And um, Michael Walzer, the American philosopher and political scientist, wrote a, fi- a famous essay in 1973 called The Problem of Dirty Hands about the politician who feels he has to use torture to save lives. His choices are hard and painful, and he pays the price not only while making them, but forever after. And I think one could certainly say that that has been true. Um, George Bush has paid a huge price for authorizing um, aggressive interrogation or torture or whatever you want to call it. Um, when, the, when bin Laden was uh, found and killed last May, the debate about torture came up again um, because many former uh, Bush administration officials insisted, though John McCain insisted it were not so, uh, they insisted that, um, that um, um, bin Laden was found only because, as a, as a fruit, if you like, of the in- aggressive interrogation. And again, um, Michael Hayden, um, director of the CIA from 2006 to 2009, said there's no debate necessary over this. He said that a crucial component of the... um, When he was first briefed on the prospects of finding bin Laden, a crucial component of the briefing was information provided by three CIA detainees, all of whom had been subjected to some form of enhanced interrogation. So, so that there is no ambiguity, let me be doubly clear. It is nearly impossible for me to imagine any operation like the May 2nd assault on bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, that, could not, that, would not have been made, that would not have made substantial use of the trove of information derived from CIA detainees, including those on whom enhanced techniques had been used. Well, that was his point of view, and by contrast, the former British head of MI5, our secret service, uh, Eliza Manningham Buller, who retired only a year ago from her job as MI5, who was there at 9-11, she said in a major speech last year on the BBC, she said, to say, she said the argument that life-saving intelligence was thereby obtained from this torture, and I accept that life-saving intelligence was obtained, still does not justify it. So there you have the the sort of two sides of the argument of this dilemma of the lesser evil. I think Michael Hayden and Eliza Manning and Buller, one saying, they, I mean, she agrees that it saved lives and maybe she would agree that it helped us find bin Laden. But I've tried to explore that. And I've also looked in that context at the remarkable difference between the public reception, both in the United States and particularly around the rest of the world, to the policies of George Bush and um, Osama bin, uh, and, uh, beg your pardon, President Obama. And um, um, I apologize, that's a, a terrible thing. And um, as you know, Obama criticized fiercely, like other people on the left, President Bush's policies in the war on terror. 
And um, when he came into office, he was very vitriolic about them being a denial of American values and so on. And when he came into office in January 20, two, uh, 2009, he said he was going to close Guantanamo within a year, as you know, and there would be no, no more aggressive interrogation and there would be no military trials. Now he has, uh, the only one of those things that he's been able to keep to is no aggressive interrogation. Guantanamo is still open and likely to remain open for a very long time to come. And uh, he has now decided to have the military trials in Guantanamo. And these are going to be the source of huge new controversy because um, all the, uh, the, the human rights organizations like the ACLU and Human Rights Watch and the Center for Constitutional Rights will fight them tooth and nail, saying that they are a travesty, a justice of kangaroo courts and so on. British politicians and British intellectuals and Europeans generally will do the same. Um, but I, I think that the trials in Guantanamo are going to be extraordinarily difficult, but will be carried out in the best traditions of American justice. And uh, I, I say this with some confidence. Um, well, forgive me, I don't... don't merit any confidence as a, as a British writer only, but I've met recently and corresponded much with the successor to Robert Jackson, who is General Mark Martins, who is, has been appointed by the Department of Defense, the new chief American prosecu military prosecutor at Guantanamo. He's a very fine man who was um, most recently, he's a lawyer, of course, and he served and set up the rule of law campaign with General David Petraeus in Iraq, and then most recently has been trying to establish rule of law in the Afghan countryside in the areas under United States control. And uh, he's, uh, I said to him when I saw him in New York last week and said, is there anything of that? He said he's had great success with Afghan courts, Afghan judges, Afghan prosecutors, and so on. And I said, how much is that that is likely to survive the American departure in 2014 from Afghanistan? And he thought that some would, but I'm afraid I'm slightly less optimistic about that. Um, I am optimistic about his, his uh, running of this court system in uh, Guantanamo. I think he will do it extremely well. He is determined to make it as open as possible. Um, he says himself that federal courts are very perfectly adequate and perfectly capable of dealing with many, many cases of terrorism, probably most cases. But there are some where the rule of law is particularly... Um, uh, violated or where national security concerns are still very um, active, where greater protection to the security concerns of the United States are, is obtainable in Guantanamo. But after all the uh, changes in the law, the Military Commissions Act of 2006 and the, the, the Act of 2009, there are actually very few differences between the uh, federal uh, law and, uh, as applies to terrorist cases and the military law in Guantanamo. One of them is that uh, soldiers are not expected to give Miranda warnings when they uh, arrest somebody, and that's allowed in Guantanamo. It's not so easily allowed in federal courts, though federal courts have begun to understand that that's an impossibility to ask American soldiers to do. And uh, sometimes hearsay evidence will also be allowed in the courts in, um, in uh, Guantanamo. Um, nonetheless, there's going to be huge pressure from... Um, both the defenders of the, the military defenders of the uh, of, of those accused in Guantanamo and from the organisations like, as I mentioned, of ACLU and so on, against these courts, and you can expect a lot of uh, a, a lot of polemics about them. But I 
I urge you to follow Mark Martins, um, look him up on Google or whatever. There's a, there's a very good, marvelous website which I read every day called lawfareblog.com, which is put out by the Brookings Institution in Washington, which follows every day sort of activities in all of these um, um, uh, er, er, complicated areas. And th this, is a, this is a speech that Mark Martins made um, last week into the New York Bar Association. And um, he, he says, I've listed in many ways, uh, many remarks, the ways in which reformed military commissions are comparable to federal courts. The accused is pr presumed innocent. The prosecution must prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The accused has the right to notice of the charges, the right to counsel and the choice of counsel, the right to be present during the proceedings, the right against self-incrimination, protection against use of statements obtained through torture or cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment, and so on. And I, I think that uh, he, will, he will do this job remarkably well. Now, I think I've already talked too long, haven't I? There are lots of other things that I wanted to talk to you about. But should I give way now to questions? What time do you want to eat? <laughs> Very soon, I should think. Everybody needs food and drink. Hmm? Well, just one last thing which I touched on, which I think is very interesting. Bush is, as I said to you, the politician who tortures, quoting Michael Walzer, is haunted by that for the rest of his life, who authorizes torture. And Obama stopped that. But what Obama has done, instead of a a capturing and interrogating suspects and thereby deriving important information, information from them, is that he, he, soon after he took office, uh, authorized a massive escalation of drone attacks upon suspected terrorists, first of all in Pakistan and in Afghanistan, and then more recently in both Somalia and Yemen. And the extraordinary thing to me is that this has happened, until recently at least, with very, very little criticism. President Bush used drones very sparingly uh, some, uh, until the last year of his presidency, 2008, fearing, I gather, um, civilian casualties, and the fact that he would be uh, denounced as a war criminal around the world. Obama ha was so, his uh, accession to power was so welcomed throughout the world and also in the United States amongst very many people and that he faced no such criticisms and was free to use drones to much greater effect and much more aggressively than Bush had ever dreamed to do. So you have this extraordinary situation, I think, in which Bush is excoriated for waterboarding three people, and B Obama has not been excoriated for killing over a 1,000 people with drones with no due process whatsoever. At least those waterboarded are now going to be able to face their day in court. Uh, those uh, attacked by drones have no such um, good luck, obviously. Now, I'm not trying to say that uh, the drone policy is wrong. Um, I'm sure that um, the vast majority of those people killed by drones have been uh, pr selected by the CIA or other agencies for very, uh, s on very serious grounds and that many of them are guilty of either having carried out terrorist plots or planning to do so. There was a big spike of attacks on drones in the badlands of Pakistan in the fall of 2010. And that was reported to be because um, uh, European Islamists in those areas were plotting uh, a Mumbai-style attack upon a European city. And 
Europe and Islam is one of the greatest, most terrifying problems of our future, I think. Uh, all European countries have vastly, very quickly growing Euro uh, Islamic populations, and a frighteningly large number of the young men in these, uh, both in Britain and in Germany and in France, have, are turning to radical Islamism. And in, in Waziristan, there are said to be whole German Taliban villages, some of which were being targeted by these drone attacks in the fall of 2010. So once again, the United States coming to the aid of Europe. Um, so, but I, I do find it interesting that uh, Obama has received very little criticism for these, this, this uh, massive expansion of the drone program. Actually, the, it has grown in the last few months because in September, he killed a man who certainly was guilty of terrible crimes, but an American citizen. Anwar al-Awlaki, whom I'm sure you've all known about, read about, who was a, born in um, New Mexico of Yemeni parents, so went back to, uh, was um, the man who encouraged Major Nidal Hassan over the internet to kill his fellow soldiers at Fort Hood in November 2009. And he personally tutored uh, the young Nigerian Abdul Mutalab, who tried to blow up a plane over Detroit in uh, Christmas Day 2009 with a bomb in his underpants. And uh, he was a thoroughly dangerous and unpleasant individual, brilliantly fluent. He spoke perfect English, obviously, being an American citizen, living here all his life, most of his life. And he w understood American, uh, Western culture. He could write on the Internet in his sermon or in his, speak in his Internet sermons about Michael Jackson, Charles Dickens, all the... Um, he was a very attractive, persuasive personality, and he did immense damage and uh, I think his death is in no way to be regretted. But the fact that he was an American citizen uh, has called into question the, 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 the right of, of the government to target an American citizen in this way. And um, it was, his death was, his, was called by the ACLU, I think, an um, extrajudicial murder. Anyhow, uh, so Obama, the criticism has, has grown uh, on Obama uh, on that score. But basically, I just would like to end with saying that my own view is that uh, um, the United States is, is, uh, was subject to a vicious and murderous, unprovoked attack on 9-11. And the United States, since then, has been fighting an extremely difficult war. And it's made mistakes. Um, as that's not surprising. As Churchill said, war is a catalog of blunders. And uh, there have been serious mistakes made in this war, and there will no doubt be more. But... Uh, I think George Bush has had a very rough deal in terms of international opinion anyway. And uh, anyone faced with the catastrophe of 9-11, knowing very little about al-Qaeda's structures and ambitions, except that bin Laden had said and repeatedly said that next time it will be with weapons of mass destruction. I think any president would have taken um, similarly draconian measures as George Bush felt he was faced to do after in that period. And... Um, the philosopher Reinhold Niebuhr, Niebuhr warned once, and I think this is, applies to this situation and will sadly continue to apply to it, we take and we must continue to take morally hazardous actions to preserve our civilization. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Your father is not.
for the way he conducted the Nuremberg trials. Oh, the Nuremberg trials. I happen to, to have known uh, Robert's story because I went to SMU Law School. And around the dinner table, around Thanksgiving, could you tell us what your father said was his favorite anecdote about what happened at the trials? <laughs> well, we did talk about it quite a lot. And I suppose, I don't know that it's his favorite anecdote, but the man who, uh, who uh, dominated the trial, uh, apart from Bob Jackson, was Hermann Goering, who was the most senior of the uh, Nazis on trial and clearly the most brilliant and uh, the most um, uh, effective. And he, my father used to say, um, the problem with Goering was that he was listening on his earphones to simultaneous translation of all the questions. And whenever the, the prosecution made a mistake, Goering would shake his head <laughs> or raise his eyebrows. And my father said, there were, you know, as the, t as the trial went on, there were times when Goering was actually trying to make the prosecution lawyers laugh. And he was a distracting figure. And, um, 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 and, and there's no question that he dominated the trial proceedings. And Bob Jackson's worst moment in the trial was his cross-examination of Goering, which he did not do well. And Goering ran rings around him, unfortunately, which was um, sad for Jackson. And... Um, um, the, the judges themselves, I think, were allowed the, 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 this prosecution to extend too long, and they allowed Goering to reply at great length to Jackson's questions and um, allowed him to dominate Jackson, and it was very humiliating for Jackson. And uh, my father took a, a, um, a kind view, and he said later to, in a speech to the American Bar Association about Jackson in appreciation of Jackson, he said that his fail Jackson's failure with Goering was due to his intellectual honesty. His whole case was to expose the evil philosophies with which the Nazis had sought to dominate the world. This inevitably involved him, putting, involved him in putting matters of opinion in an argumentative rather than a factual exchange. Jackson al you know, allowed Goering to just expatiate, and he shouldn't. He should ever... I, you, I shouldn't say this to all you distinguished lawyers, but I think you should, my father used to say you should never ask a question if you don't know the answer, and it should only be a yes or no, <laughs> preferably. Uh, since you spend a lot of time in this country, you're probably aware of our tendency to dress up all our social, economic, and political questions as legal issues. And so the question of what is the status of the Al-Qaeda fighters who've been captured, who should decide that? One might think the political leaders should decide that under our system. Ultimately, the Supreme Court will decide that. And if they decide differently from what George Bush did, the whole system will be thrown out and it'll have to start over again. Well, you're absolutely right, and that is, in fact, what happened. Um, there was a famous case in 2004, I think, of... Hamdan versus Rumsfeld, and Hamdan was an al-Qaeda fighter who was said to be um, bin Laden's driver, and he was arrested in Afghanistan with a rocket launcher in his car, and he was brought and put on trial, and his def military defense lawyers um, took the issue right up to the Supreme Court, and uh, the court found that the military commissions created by George Bush in November 2001 were 
unconstitutional. And so uh, then, and then there was another judgment, uh, the Boumedien judgment in 2006, which again uh, uh, threw out the commissions that Bush had set up. And there that, court, that Supreme Court ruling was very divided. It was five to four, I think, and Justice Scalia uh, led the uh, minority and said, this is a terrible mistake. We're now giving, handing uh, power over national security issues to the branch of government that knows least about it, the judiciary. Um, but then after that, the, uh, the, 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 um, uh, the Bush administration produced the new <coughs> Military Commissions Act of 2006, which was a, a big, well, I don't know if the word is improvement, but big, took account of all the complaints that the Supreme Court had made. And that, slightly modified in 2009, was, is, what the, is the law under which these people will now be prosecuted. But you're absolutely right. There is this constant tension between uh, the court and um, the, between the judiciary and, and, and the executive. And it's gone back, as you know better than me, in, in, um, into history. There was a, the, the, one of the precursors of this uh, um, the military commissions was in 1942 when... Um, Roosevelt, when six Nazi saboteurs landed by U-boat on the coasts of Florida and um, Long Island, and two of them, they were not very competent. Hitler wanted them to blow up factories, and you know, it was ridiculous sending six Nazi saboteurs to think that it's going to affect the United States. But anyway, there we are. Um, and they landed, and, and two of them gave themselves up immediately. They were so scared. And they turned in, they gave information which led to the capture of the other f four. And Roosevelt took a very, very hard line on this. And um, he said to his attorney general, Francis Biddle, that the only solution to this, the only response to this is the death penalty. And um, he, said, he, he said to Biddle, um, I want to make one thing perfectly understood, Francis. I won't give them up. I won't hand them over to any U.S. marshal armed with a writ of habeas corpus. Understand? <laughs> And he didn't, and there was a Supreme Court emergency session at the court to decide whether these people could be tried in a military commission, and they were, and Roosevelt, and the death penalty, um, I mean, uh, Roosevelt said that, um, the, he, he said, it seems to me that the death penalty is almost obligatory, and uh, the death penalty was indeed handed down to all six, and the two who, who had turned themselves in were given long sentences and then deported back to Germany in the 1950s, I think. One of them kept saying, I want to come back to America. It's the only country I really like. He wasn't allowed back. But um, the, on that occasion, Roosevelt was very adamant. And uh, it's a measure, perhaps, of the changes between 1944, 1942 and 2002 that the president in 1942 was able to do ex almost exactly what he wanted. George Bush had no such luck. My question is on a different subject. Um, some years ago, you wrote a book about the fall of um, the Shah in Iran. Yes. And I was wondering if you see any parallels between those events and the recent Arab Spring and the fall of the rulers in Egypt and Libya and maybe Syria as well as to the threat of an Islamic fundamentalist government coming into those uh, countries. Well, yes, it's a very important topical question, and no one knows how the so-called Arab Spring is going to end, and it may end very differently in each of the countries. The, the, uh, the fall of the Shah was a catastrophe for the world, but particularly, obviously, for the Iranian people. And I always, I, I, I can never understand how those appalling ayatollahs have remained in power for so long, since 1979. 
The Shah made mistakes, but he was trying to modernize the country and produce a decent country. And the Shah, unlike the dictators today, said, I, I am a king, I cannot shoot on my own people. And he didn't, and he left. Um, and the Ayatollahs have run a terrorist regime ever since in a most appalling manner. And now, as you know, the threat is coming to a, a real head, and how it will be resolved is not clear. But um, I, I think that... Uh, it, I mean, it's, ve it's a very frightening situation because I don't think the Israelis will permit them to acquire nuclear weapons without doing everything they can to stop it. And the United States will probably, well, we'll see. I don't know, there may be an October surprise again this year, just before the election. But it's a very frightening situation. As for the other countries in the Middle East, you're right. In um, the election in, in um, Egypt, which is, together with Syria, probably the most important of the Arab countries in turmoil at the moment, 60% of the population voted either for the Muslim Brotherhood or for the more extreme version um, of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Al-Nur Party. And whether those two parties will be able to form a co um, an Islamist coalition in Egypt, which is m relatively moderate, as the Islamist government in Turkey is, or whether it will drift further towards um, radical Islamist r rule is to be seen. I suspect the army will probably not surrender its what, the, the power that it has at all easily, so that we may get back to just a military rule. They, the Islamists, have been, they've been fighting for decades, and it's not clear that they'll be, the army will seek to stop that. Um, in Syria, you have a really frightening prospect of civil war now, and that could be as bloody as the civil war in Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein. And... Um, it's worth remembering that in, in Iraq, uh, since the fall of Saddam Hussein, about 130,000 people, possibly a few more civilians, have been killed. Um, the, best, the best sort of tally of this horrible massacre, continuing massacre, is on a website called IraqBodyCount.com. Iraq the vast majority of those people are, Muslim, uh, are Muslims killed by other Muslims, Sunnis killed by Shia, and vice versa and the bombings that go on constantly in Baghdad and in, in Iraq now and have got worse since the withdrawal of American troops um, on the 1st of January uh, are testament to that continuing sectarian hatred, and that's what's likely to tear Syria apart also. And it's, it's, it's extremely alarming because um, the, the, in Syria the Sunnis are the majority, but they've been denied power until now, and if, if, the, if the Assad regime, which is a minority regime made up of the Alawite sect, if they fall, the Sunnis will take over and they will exact, no doubt, some revenge. And they may decide to ally themselves with the Sunnis in Iraq who are now fighting and separating from the Shiite government in Iraq and so on. It's, it's a mess. And I'm afraid, so I don't think the, Iraq spring, the Arab Spring is necessarily going to bring vast improvements of life to most of the Arab people. We've got the upcoming trial of the perpetrator of 9-11. Uh, describe what the trial is going to be like in the likely outcome, uh, and assuming that he is found guilty, what are they going to do with the guy? Well, um, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, uh, President Obama and uh, Eric Holder, had, at the time when there was the discussion about the, uh, the um, uh, trials in Manhattan, when people were saying that a federal trial is not the right place for these terrorists, both Obama and uh, Eric Holder made, I think, the mistake of saying um, people won't be criticizing these 
courts when they find Khalid Sheikh Mohammed guilty and sentence him to death, which I think was a probably not, not, not a, it's prejudicial perhaps for the president to say that. And um, I think that the ACLU and other organizations will use those sorts, of, and the defense lawyers will use those statements um, to the full. I think it's going to be an incredibly difficult trial. There's one, for example, a, a, a little, not a little, a big incident that has happened recently. The commandant of uh, Guantanamo is a man called Admiral Wood, and he recently ordered that all communications between def military defense lawyers and their and their clients in Guantanamo have to be subjected to some kind of overview, not by the prosecution, but a, a, a so-called privilege team of um, um, uh, an army team was, is to, be, to look at all the communications, the written communications between um, Al-Qaeda people and their lawyers. And the reason for this is because so-called contraband has been getting into, Al into the Al-Qaeda cells. Uh, there was a famous incident of it when lawyers from the John Adams Project, who, which was set up after 2001 to help al-Qaeda uh, detainees in Guantanamo, when Guantanamo was a very different place. Now it's the only detention camp that comes under federal law, so the people in Guantanamo have far greater protections than anyone in Bagram in Afghanistan, or, for example, has. Anyway, back in 2002 or three, I think, uh, the some of the detainees were found to have photographs of CIA agents in their cells, and these had been smuggled into them by their lawyers from the John Adams Project in an attempt to identify those CIA officers who might have been present in CIA secret sites in Poland and uh, complicit in, in, in enhanced interrogation and so on. And that was an absolutely scandalous abuse of the attorney-client privilege. And similar things have happened since. Another lawyer, um, a woman in New York, not in the federal, in the federal system, was, is serving a long time in jail for uh, passing messages from her Islamic client to his followers in Egypt. Anyway, um, one of the, that, so that's contraband. That sort of thing is contraband. And also, sorry to say, paper clips and, um, um, and, and staples are called now contraband. And in one case, General Martins was saying last week, one case there are 600,000 pages of discovery which have to be turned over to the defendant, of course, and to his lawyers. And the government has to go through all those pages to see that there are no paper clips and no staples within them. Why? Because prisoners have been known to turn these uh, innocent little things into weapons to use against prison officers. And the most notorious case of this was... Um, a prisoner in, uh, called Salim, who some years back now, in, he was in the New York penitentiary, had a comb, and he fashioned one of the teeth in the comb by rubbing it under his desk for weeks or however long it was into an extremely sharp needle, which he drove into the eye of a prison officer called Pr Officer Pepe, who suffered not only blindness but brain damage and is now permanently disabled. So you can see why... For that reason alone, the paperclip reason alone, this is going to be a very, very difficult trial and difficult at every stage and at every level. Um, I say, as I said to you, I have great confidence that uh, Admiral Martins will do the best possible job in ensuring that it is open. Um, there will be a courtroom, uh, in the, there's a specially built courtroom in Guantanamo with a big spectator area and an overflow room where other spectators, victims, families, human rights groups, who are press can see the proceedings on closed-circuit screens. And there will be uh, sites throughout the United States, I don't know how many yet, 
where people will be able to watch the proceedings on, a, on um, closed circuit screens uh, with a 10 second pause or you know, whatever it's called. And one of the first of those that's been announced will be at Fort Meade, and I would be very surprised if there wasn't one in Texas. I'm sure there would be, and probably one on the West Coast as well. So they're going to make their best. I mean, uh, Martins knows that this is a very difficult battle for him to fight to get these trials accepted, and he will do everything he can to make them open and uh, seem to be open and fair as possible. Thank you so much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.